This week's episode of Finding Strength is brought to you by Tenny's Pizza. Tenny's Pizza is... Okay, guys. Tenny's Pizza is fantastic. If you live in the Utah County area, there's one in Riverton, there's one in Saratoga, there's one in American Fork. These guys do an amazing job getting us food that tastes amazing at a really great price. They have this awesome new app that makes ordering super fast and easy. You just download the app, order it up, comes right to your door, super quick, super affordable. Today, that's right, Wednesday, September 26th, they have the Oreo pizza. Dessert pizza, that's right people, it launches today. You gotta get that, order it up tonight, use that Tenny's Pizza app. It's locally owned, they make all their own dough from scratch every single day. It's an amazing, amazing product that you gotta check out right now. So go download the Tenny's app right away and get yourself some pizza tonight. Hello, and welcome to the Finding Strength Podcast. So last week, a little recap, we met with Sam, probably one of the most mature 18-year-olds I've ever met in my life. Uh, she's Probably? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. We learned so much. You guys, if you have ever met, heard, know of anyone in this situation that's dealt with a similar situation of suicide or anything close to it, listen, pass this on. She has so much knowledge and information to give and find her. She would be a great source for anybody. For sure. Yeah. Um, today we talked to Gina Kratz and I I loved every second of it. I mean, I know I say that every time, but I really do. It's incredible to learn about people's stories, their lives, what they're now doing to pay it forward in life. It's just, it was amazing. She has an incredible ability to find meaning in pain, which is something that I definitely connect with because that's kind of my life message that I try and put out there. So I'm really glad that we found her. As well, she goes through her story of adopting or of placing her baby for adoption. Throughout the episode, we actually say, give your baby up for adoption. And at the very end, she's like, uh, just so you guys know, uh, you should say place. And we're like, oh, yeah. Because that is the thing, the politically correct, acceptable way to say it, place your baby for adoption. Because she wants to get out there that she didn't give anything away. She placed her in a situation that she thought would be better for her. And that is a really awesome thing to learn that we get to touch on in this episode quite a bit. As well, she touches on shame resilience and how to deal with shame, overcoming stigma, and going through a seemingly impossible situation and coming out on the other side stronger. Also, somehow we navigate through parenting and how, I don't even remember how we get there, but it's a really know. cool part. It's, I think it's towards the end. We talk about how to be better parents and empower our children. That's something you're not going to want to miss. So without further ado, here is episode number seven. That's right. We've done seven of these people. <laughs> episode seven of Finding Strength. Enjoy. So here we sit with Gina. What was your last name again? Sorry. Kratz. Kratz. Yes. So excited to have you here, Gina. Thank you. You. Are, so this is episode seven, and you are our first guest that we kind of don't know. We kind of found you because my wife like met you at a, like a 
thing or something? See, that's how much we know, people. <laughs> All I heard is Brindy met you, which really doesn't mean much because Brindy will talk to everybody She's like everywhere. The most social person alive. And you can't like not love her when you talk to her. So she'll ask you to do Truth. something and you're like, okay. That's, that's we we met at dinner with a mutual friend, but there was 14 of us there. So I barely even know Brindy. That's so awesome. Yeah. And she's like, hey, yeah. come do this podcast. <laughs> yep. Right. Well, apparently her friend Callie was like, you need to have Gina on Matt's podcast. And Brindy was like, well, why? And you have a really cool story. So I know like a tiny bit about you just from the bio you sent us. More than anything, like what's what's your story? Like why are why are you so interesting? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> really, what's your story? So I am a birth mom. I placed my first baby for adoption when I was nineteen. Um, she will turn eighteen next month. So I spent a lot of my time after I placed her for about fourteen years running my own nonprofit, um, reaching out to other birth moms and educating adoptive couples on our side of the story. And right now I'm in the middle of watch or writing my adoption memoir. So my whole story from beginning to end. Okay. So I have a question for you then. Yeah. See now if you start telling me things and like my brain starts going like, okay. So tell me a little bit about before. So you were 19 when you gave yeah. your baby up for adoption. What were you like before then? What like teenage years? What was personality? What were you into? Like who were you with before that point? Well, ironically enough, I was kind of that girl that never did not have a boyfriend. Oh, I me too. Always had a boyfriend, right? Mm-hmm. Always. It was yeah, me my too. I was like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was my first year in college and I was working and having a blast and living with a bunch of girlfriends and we were all doing things we probably shouldn't have been doing and having a good time. I was yeah. living college to the fullest. Kids. Oh yeah. Taking my first putting my toes in the water of being an adult. So Okay. So typical yeah. teenager. Oh yeah. Just doing your thing. Yeah. When, how did you meet um, the person or how did that come about? He was my manager actually at my work. Okay. So we dated um, for about two years on and off. It was kind of one of those roller coaster relationships. We'd break up and both of us would get together with somebody else and then the other person would come running back and it, we did that for two years and before I got pregnant. Okay. So yeah. it was, it was pretty much a boyfriend. It wasn't like a, yeah random one night thing no so, okay so no, that's this no is good. it was yeah we had we had a relationship it was yeah it was a friendship really that was another thing I had to kind of mourn and let go of after I got pregnant so what at what point so you get pregnant mm-hmm. you're 19 did you always assume you'd give it up for adoption um pretty early on I did actually so I remember having this class in high school and I don't remember what class it actually was in possibly health, but we had a abortion clinic that came in and gave us an example of like what happens when you have an abortion and everyone I've talked to that have gone to high school, like does not remember this class, but I've never had this class. I don't know. This this is kind of cool. Actually. I graduated in 98. So I'm like, so did I, (laughs) where did you go to school? Where are you from? Yeah. Gosh, same school district. I may have done that class and I was in my own world. No one remembers it when I mention it, but I remember it so clearly. And I remember the lady like showing us like this vacuum like tube that goes inside your body and how it sucks out the baby's parts and all of and I remember being totally grossed out. Like that's intense. Yeah. And what's weird about it, I mean going to a school in Utah County that's mostly Mormon and LDS. I didn't feel like they were saying like abortion is wrong or you should choose adoption or 
it wasn't pushed either way. But I remember sitting at the end of that class and thinking, the lady, the last thing she said was, your other option is adoption. And I remember thinking, huh, I think I would do that. Like, I don't think I could have an abortion. And that was like my first thought of adoption ever. And that was my junior year in high school. Um, so then when I found out I was pregnant and I told my boyfriend and he said, I think you should get an abortion and this will all just go away. I remember thinking, I can't do that. I just, I can't. There's something inside of me, you know, whether it was my beliefs then or whatever, I just, I couldn't do it. So I started leaning that way early on and then didn't have like a confirm answer until maybe midway into my pregnancy that that's really what I was going to do. So you knew you didn't want an abortion. Yeah. But your thoughts were, do I keep it or do I give it up? Do I parent? Do I place? You know, what do I want to do? I came to that conclusion one night. So I I moved to Arizona after I got pregnant, which was totally my choice. My parents weren't like, oh, move away. You're pregnant. We're ashamed of you. It was more like my brother lived there. I needed space. I told them I wanted to go if my brother was cool with it. And I found myself there. I was working two jobs, driving around one night in my truck. And I'm like, I'm not going to stop until I like know what I'm doing. Cause I, I just need to make a decision at this point. So I started making this list in my mind of like the pros and cons of parenting, the pros and cons of placing and everything that I came up with to place had her name in the middle of it. Like at the beginning, like this will be better for her. Cause she has a mom and dad. This will be better for her because she'll have what she needs. She'll be provided for and then it was like thinking about parenting. It was like, well, I won't miss her and I won't have to find a family for her. And I, 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 mm-hmm. and that was like a really bright light of like, you know, keeping and parenting felt really selfish to me at that time. And I just had that confirmation, like, this is what you're supposed to do. So from there on out, I just, that's the road I took. When we, cause we went through a similar experience because we too, Brendy and I got, uh, I, I got her pregnant before we were married. And similar to your situation, the culture mm-hmm. around here is like, and I don't know if this had an influence on you. In my situation, it was abortion wasn't even considered an option for us. Yeah. And I actually had a lot of people in my life that, that were just telling me what to do constantly. Like, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. This is what you should, you should do. And I didn't know what to do because there's this bombardment of advice constantly. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's similar to your situation, but you're 19 years old. You have parents, you have friends, family members, all these people. Were they doing the same kind of thing? Was that difficult for you to deal with or not really? Or Yeah, actually they weren't, surprisingly. When I look back on it now, my parents handled it really well. And they were really good to kind of stand back and kind of let me figure it out. I do remember saying something really stupid after I told my parents, like, well, what are you going to do? Like, what are we going to do? And my dad looking at me like, are you kidding me? Like, this is on you. Like, you got to decide. Like, and me being 19, I'm kind of like, pick up the pieces, yeah. you know? Take like, care of me. You <laughs> yeah. always have. Why yeah. can't you do it Rescue now? Me, I can like Please. still Come see on, my Daddy. sister's face, like, yeah. and where we were standing in my parents' house. And she looked at me like, oh, that was, you should not have said that. <laughs> That's cool. What's your, just to go back just for a second. Yeah. What's your family dynamic like? Like parents, siblings, where yeah. do you fit in your family? I'm the youngest. Okay. Of four. Um, my sister that's closest to me is five years older than I am, um, which ironically enough, she actually got pregnant as well as okay. a teenager. And she, her and her boyfriend at the time got married and stayed married for a little while. And then I watched my nephew kind of bounce back and forth with them 
after they got divorced, which also kind of pushed me mm-hmm. to place because I didn't want to see my baby kind of do that. It was like coming, coming back, coming forth. And he had a different bag on every time. And there was something about it that just didn't, wasn't comfortable with me. Um, but my family was close. I grew up LDS, grew up in the church. My sister that was just older than I am, um, she left the church when she was 13. But my older two uh, stayed in the church. My parents are still active. My dad was a bishop when I was in, actually not when I was in high school. It was after, I think right after I got married, he became bishop. Okay. So is, are you an active LDS? No. Were you at the time? Yes. So was, did that, how was that? Because I, I grew up LDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, I, I had a couple friends that mm-hmm. got pregnant out of wedlock. And it was, that was tough. Yeah. Because it's so, and this isn't just an LDS thing, I'm not, but I'm just saying mm-hmm. like, especially religion, religion in general. Oh yeah. It's so frowned upon mm-hmm. to be promiscuous at all before marriage. Yeah. Was that tough? Yeah. To have, so now everyone knows you've oh, done yeah. this. It's mm-hmm. like no secrets here. And then, yeah, now you're going to give it up. Like that's, yeah. How did you deal with that with coming from such a strong religious background? I think... After I told my boyfriend and he kind of took off and he was gone, I got really depressed. I moved home with my parents. I spent a lot of time alone in my room and being depressed and just sulking. Like, I'm never going to leave the house. I don't even want to show my face anywhere. And my sister that's just older than I am, I remember coming her, her coming into my room and being like, you can't do this. Like, you got to stand up. You got to face the facts, face the consequences Like, you're not the only person that's having sex, let's be honest, you know? You're just the one that got caught, so figure it out. And she was kind of the first person that looked at me with more, like, not feeling sorry for me. It was, like, courage, like, stand up, where everybody else was like, oh, poor you, and Mm -hmm. yeah, we, you should be embarrassed, you know? Where she was like, whatever, like, this happened, you're the one that got caught, and now you just need to figure out what you're going to do, so... That's cool. That matter of fact kind of like yeah, pick up, you know, mm-hmm. pooper, get off the pot. Yeah, thing, right? yeah. Figure it That's out. That's so funny because I was on phone yeah. with her today and she said that to me about something else. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that exact phrase. That's so she's that do. person for me, I guess. I yeah. Well, and, and that's something that we need to figure out at some point in our mm-hmm. lives. And I mean, the world is going to teach you that no matter what. You, you got to yeah. pick up, show up. And make things happen for yourself. And there's a million ways to learn that. Yeah. At 19, the way you learned that was really cool. And you kind of turned that into like some sort of meaning for you, right? Like it, yeah. it's, it's become this lifelong journey now. Like you're writing a memoir. Mm-hmm. You counsel other women who are going through the same type of thing. Mm-hmm. What was that journey like? Taking it from this thing of like... I'm ashamed. This not really ashamed, but just like yeah. kind of embarrassed, or maybe even there was shame there. Yeah, totally. To now, I got this. Yeah, I'm gonna give my baby to a, another family, mm-hmm. and I'm going to own it and teach other people why this worked for me, and maybe it might work for you. Yeah, I think the shift really came probably right after I placed. I remember feeling really alone. And thinking like nobody understands what I'm going through. My mom can't even understand what I'm going through. I wasn't close to anyone who had been adopted, who ever placed a baby, nothing. And and that was hard. It's probably the lowest point I've ever been in my life. Of just like, what am I supposed to do? 
like who do I lean on and who's going to be able to say it's okay or you're supposed to feel like this or you're not. And after that, I when was it? I've got to think about this for a minute. It actually was, I got married shortly after actually placing. So I had her in October and I was engaged the next month and married in February. And that first Christmas, I remember looking at my husband and telling him I wanted to do a service project, which I typically did one for Christmas every year. But this year I wanted to do something for birth moms because I felt like nobody was standing up. Nobody was talking about it. Everybody was ashamed of it. And I wanted to do something to just kind of reach out and say, hey, I've been in your shoes. I've been there. I know what you're going through. And that's kind of how Birth Mother Baskets started. And that was the nonprofit that I ran for a long time. I felt such confidence in the decision that I had made afterwards that I felt like I shouldn't feel ashamedful about it anymore. Mm -hmm. I had had a confirmation all along the path. Everything, every decision I turned to, there was another confirmation for me that I felt strong about. And I thought to myself that I shouldn't feel shameful for something that feels so beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. And if one of us just steps up, then maybe more of us will start stepping up. Okay. I love that. And I actually thought about this a lot today because I thought, I, I know many people who have given up babies for adoption, but it's mm-hmm. like you've said, it's almost like, I felt like, you know, when I was younger, it, there was that shame. Yeah. And so once the baby's been put up for adoption, they're like, let's pretend this never happened. Mm-hmm. Let's move on with life. I think it is so cool that you're doing something for these birth moms because that's a lot to go through. What? So I've had babies, but I've never given Mm -hmm. one up. And Mm -hmm. what is that like? I know you knew it was the right decision, Mm -hmm. but it must have still been hard. Oh, yeah. Like, and the emotional roller coaster afterwards Mm -hmm. when you've got these hormones and there's no baby to help kind of balance it. What Mm -hmm. was that like? It was lonely. It was really lonely. And it was um, after delivery there were some complications with her and some complications with me. So I didn't have that moment of like delivery and then they put your baby, you know, on your chest. She was taken out of the room pretty quickly. And I remember being in a panic, like, did they take her because they know I'm placing her for adoption and they, you know, they don't want me to see her and they don't want me to hold her and they don't want me to get attached. And, but there was so much chaos going on. So it really wasn't until, you know, I don't even know the timeline actually, maybe a few hours is what it felt like to me until things had settled down and they had kind of put me in the recovery room or where they take you after delivery. And I'm sitting in there with my mom and I looked at her and I said, I haven't even seen her. I haven't even held her. And my mom not realizing, because there was so many emotions in the room. It was like, now that I have my own children too at home, there was this like eerie silence after delivery. Like nobody knew really to like celebrate or like mourn or cry or it was all just kind of like, how do we feel, you know? And I think my mom kind of got caught up in that too. Like she wasn't sure what to do. And so I said, I, I want to see her. And she was in the nursery. So my mom put me in the wheelchair and she wheeled me into the nursery. And the nurse, she was hooked up to some tubes and the nurse put her in my lap. And the very first thing I thought of was, this is not your baby. And I heard it so clear over and over and over again that I just started sobbing because I knew, I knew I was this pathway for her to get here for whatever reason. And as much as that maternal part of me wanted to just hold on to her tighter, I knew what I was doing was the right thing. And I just had to do it. 
And a lot of that time afterwards for the first week or two after that, you like, you're not even in your body. I felt like I was just watching a movie and my actions just kept going without me even thinking. And I just kind of watched everybody it all play out really. And then the grieving process sets in. And I think what I've realized over 18 years now is the grieving process still like ebbs and flows. And I have moments that are really hard and I have moments where it's fine and it's not a big deal. And that's been there from day one that you just have to figure out how to deal with the grief. I was going to ask that actually, I thought, cause I thought it would be similar to losing a child and mm-hmm. the fact that you do, you have to grieve that the loss of that child, you know, yeah. you're not, they may still be here, but you're not the one raising them or seeing them. Yeah. Do you see her or know much about her? Yeah. I do. So, um, I placed through LDS family services. So back then open adoption wasn't really a thing. It was kind of semi open is what they called it real quick. Can you explain the difference between open and closed adoption just for the listeners? So open adoption can be agreed between the adoptive couple and the birth parent, how much openness you want. So it's like visitation, you know, family parties, birthdays, letters, pictures, whatever you guys kind of agree to as far as, what level of openness you want. Um, I know a lot of birth moms that they're there with the family all the time. They see him every month or they talk to him on the phone every day. Mm-hmm. Semi-open is more letters and pictures, but no actual like face-to-face contact or speaking over the phone. And a closed adoption is you possibly have picked the parents and you kind of know a little bit about them, but you have no contact after that throughout the child's life. So mine was really semi-open back when I placed. That's kind of what everybody did. So for the first five years, I was allowed pictures and letters continuously. Whenever they would send them, I would get them. And I was also sending letters and pictures of whatever I wanted. Once she turned five, what I had thought I had agreed to was a letter and a picture every year on her birthday. Um, But when she turned five, the adoptive couple wanted to stop communication And so I really begged them to keep that open and they agreed to do that, but I was not allowed to send anything back. So we would just receive something every year on her birthday and that was it until let's see, 2010. So maybe until she was 10 years old, um, her parents ended up getting divorced and her adoptive dad had kind of kept track of where my husband had always been. And so he reached out to us more and started emailing us more and her adoptive mom did a little bit as well. So we've had a little more communication since that time, since the two of them split. Have you ever met her? Yes and no. <laughs> it's uh, it's complicated. I, I know a lot about her. I haven't seen her face to face. Okay. Yeah. Is that something you hope to do in the future or is yeah. that going to be something you're going to let her decide when I think it will happen shortly for sure she'll be 18 so she can make that decision yeah yeah there's there's things in the works that I'm not I don't want to confirm because I'm not sure but yeah yeah is that I mean you deal with a lot of adopted or uh, Mm -hmm. birth moms is that a typical thing to like end up you know once they are an adult that they kind of search them out yeah I think a lot of adoptees have this curious you know, questions of where they came from or why they look the way they do, or a lot of them will reach out because of medical, you know, issues or history that they want to know. 
I think a lot don't, mostly because they don't want to upset the adoptive parents, their parents, basically. Um, but yeah, I think a lot do. What I started to notice once I started running the nonprofit for so long is placements became a lot more open. And so there wasn't like this huge need of like, I need to know who my birth parents are. I need to know where I came from because you already knew. And it really started to open up to where those questions were being answered so early on. And a lot of birth moms started speaking out and telling their story and running their own organizations and doing stuff that, that it didn't become, it wasn't so secrecy like it had been before. So, so tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit. Um, so I actually don't run the nonprofit anymore. I did for 14 years. I stepped away four years ago. Okay. And what it was was uh, basically gift baskets that we would deliver to agencies and hospitals that were, it was like a gift package of just items that were only for the birth mom. Because most of the time when you leave the hospital, you leave like your sample pack, you know, mm -hmm. of like Infamil or whatever. And I wanted to put something there that was something that the birth mom could actually take home. And so we delivered baskets and did that for a long time and became a nonprofit after so many years. And now um, I have two business partners that actually run it from Florida and from Indiana, and, and they have taken it into much bigger things. So I love that. What are in those baskets? We did journals, blankets, bath salts, lotion, just anything that made the birth mom feel pampered and important. And it really was more just a notion of, hey, I've been there, you know, there was a letter in there, um, that was from me just saying, I've placed my baby. I know the feelings you're going through, you know, reach out. We had a birth, uh, mom support group where you could get on and kind of talk to people and ask questions. And so, yeah. That's awesome. One of the things that, um, I was most impressed with in hearing your story is that you were able to, to do that and like understand that there's an end to this I guess more or less mm -hmm. like it, it seems like you found meaning in it and you didn't really close the door on it but you started new things and you've yes. since done a bunch of new things right like you write you do all sorts of new things what have you been doing since since the adoption and, and now you have even more stuff you're doing right yeah yeah so after I stepped away from the nonprofit, I really started just venturing into like I didn't want to be Gina the birth mom anymore it was kind of like, I've been this person for so long and I kind of need to find out who I am without that title. Mm. So I started diving into more of the artistic side that I have always had and became a creative arts manager with a local company here in Utah and did that for a while and I loved it. Uh, and then I ended up getting a concussion two and a half years ago and it was, it was rough. I was out for a long time. I couldn't even write my name. I mean, it was really... I was in bed for a long time and during I fell roller skating. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, I rollerblade all the time. That's your favorite thing <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. I used to rollerblade all the time too, actually oh. in college, but I, and I wasn't even doing anything stupid because normally I'd be doing some stupid trick like, Hey, check this out. You yeah. know, I was just standing there talking to my friend and kind of lost my balance and fell backwards and put my hand down to catch myself and my arm gave out and I hit the left corner of my head and had a severe concussion and it, it really rocked things for me. And during that time, a lot of the re relief I could only find was meditating. And once I could writing in my journal and doing stuff like that, and I kept hearing over and over again, like you're a writer, you're a writer, you're a writer. 
which I had always kind of tapped into that a little bit, but didn't realize the talent behind there until after that. And so I went back to work eventually, still kind of suffering with post-concussion syndrome. What is, um, not to butt in, mm-hmm. when you say the only relief you found was for meditation, like mm-hmm. relief from pain? Oh, yeah. Okay. Headaches. Headaches. I lost all my peripheral vision, um, dizziness, just anything emotional, irrational, um, anxious. I had, I couldn't even go to the grocery store without having earplugs in, uh, okay. anywhere that was busy with a lot of commotion. So I spent a lot of time meditating and trying to just like quiet my mind and settle it down. Were there other things that you tried before that maybe weren't as successful or was that the first thing you stumbled on that worked? We, I tried a lot of things. I saw a neurologist that didn't seem, you know, it's, your symptoms are so different when you have concussion. Every patient's so different. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like, oh, you just need time. You just need time. You need to rest. You need to rest. You give, you know, no TV, no phone. No. But I was doing that for like months and nothing was changing and feeling depressed and horrible. And I kept kind of doing my own research and seeing, you know, what helps? What can I do? I did cranial sacral therapy for a while, not eased some of it. But really it was just the meditation of just trying to like center myself and forget about what was going on. I've been meditating a little bit before that, maybe a year or two before the concussion. So I kind of knew how to lean into that before then. But a lot of stuff didn't help. I wouldn't take medication. My body's really sensitive to taking pain pills and stuff like that. So I think I ended up taking it once, but then I had like an anxiety attack about even taking it, you know? Yeah. And so it really, I used a lot of peppermint oil, which <laughs> sounds crazy, but that helped. So here's my question about meditation. So I love to meditate, mm-hmm. but I'm, I think it's, I have a little bit of, um, ADD. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don't we all? When I say a little bit, I mean a lot. <laughs> um, I, so I use, um, like a, an app on my phone and I, I yeah. do guided meditation because I don't feel like I have, I haven't done it long enough that I feel comfortable doing it alone. And yeah. it was interesting. I was just talking to a coworker this morning about meditation and he was saying how he would love to get into it more. How did you learn or was there something that helped you to learn how to do it better or get to be able to dig deep into meditation? Uh, I started with a meditation guidebook that I found at Barnes and Noble that was on sale and I was intrigued by it. I'm like, okay. So it was a really basic, I wish I could remember the name of it, but just like a really basic guide of like what to start out with, you know, sit in a comfortable position and make sure it's quiet and, you know, flip your hands up into the air and just relax. And that's really all I did to begin with. And I could feel my thoughts drifting a lot. And then I heard from somebody like when you have a thought during your meditation to not beat yourself up about it, but just to say thinking I'm thinking, you know, and then try to let it go and just recognizing like, okay, I'm thinking right now and I just need to stop it or to start counting my breaths, but only to count to 10 and then restart again. And I did that for the first year or so before my concussion. After the concussion, I leaned on an app and had to use the app for a while. And I believe that one that I used was Headspace. And that I one, have that, like one? that one. Yeah. yeah, I use a couple, but I have that one. Yeah, that one worked really good for a while. And now I'm back to where I don't, I don't need it. But I think just being patient with yourself because it takes years to get. And I, and I still have days where it's like really crappy or I'm like, I don't think I even meditated that whole 15 yeah. minutes. And then other times where I feel like I lay there for like an hour. So after, after I 
after I figured that out and started hearing that, like, you're a writer, you're a writer, you're a writer, I really felt compelled to write my story. My favorite thing about meditation is that we Westerners mm-hmm. um, found meditation in the last, like, 50 years. <laughs> right. Or maybe even really, like, 20 years. And it's been around uh. for thousands. <laughs> And we're like, look at this cool thing that we found. It's so amazing. And all of these Easterners are like, yeah, we've been doing this for a long it, time. Let's be honest. It only got to Utah like five years oh, ago. I know. <laughs> and, so true. And I, and I, so I do meditation constantly because I can't yeah. prescribe medications for what I do. And so meditation yeah. is a massive part of what I teach people to do. And just mm-hmm. mindfulness, just being connected to who you are in the moment yes. is so powerful. And people at first look at you like, what are you talking about? Are you hippie? Like you're freaking mm-hmm. crazy. And you're like, well, I had a concussion. It's like TBI, right? Yeah. Like traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And nothing worked except for meditation. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's more to this mm-hmm. than people think. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing is, is like, well, if it's that powerful, it must be really hard to do. Yeah. And and then you're like, well, I found a book at Barnes and Noble. And just <laughs> sat there. I have an app and I literally spend five to 10 minutes it's, a day. <laughs> it's that simple, people. Yeah, like, it's discipline, really. Yeah, listeners, it's like creating a habit. If you want to learn something, go meditate. Go to mm-hmm. your bathroom. Go to your bed. Sit down for a minute and just notice the world around you for yeah. two minutes. And just watch what happens. Because... What's happening is your brain state is changing. The way that your brain is operating, you can control that and learn to control it. We are constantly controlled by reactivity in the brain, mm-hmm. constantly. And there's something that happens and we're reacting, happens and we're reacting. Through meditation, we learn how to control before the reactivity happens. We have this presence of mind so that I can change how I experience the world and it's it's like freaking magic. It is. It it's really is. incredible. Yeah. And that's cool that that's the thing that helped yeah. you solve your gigantic medical problem. It did. It did. And Better I... than opioids, people. Right? <laughs> like, it's that's true. Cool. I will be clear, though. I ended up going to treatment for my concussion. For sure. But on a daily basis, mm-hmm. it was the meditation. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. So it's... And I think when I really look back on it, even at 19, I had to find that space to make the decision that I did. And I didn't know at the time that that's what I was doing. Like I've always said to myself, like any difficult decision can be solved by taking a hot bath. And I think all those years I was actually meditating while I was in the bath and not realizing it. And so when I found that book and I was compelled to read it and look at it, I think it was something I was always doing. I just didn't know how to describe it. Yeah. And and that's the thing. The bathing is cool too. So Meditation involves all five senses and the thinking brain wants us to connect to thoughts rather than our senses. Mm -hmm. So the thing you do, like when you say I'm thinking, I'm actually labeling these thoughts that I'm having as simply thoughts and they pass through. Mm -hmm. And then I connect to the bath thing is awesome because think about, I mean, that's a really relaxing place. There's a reason why baths work because the sensory yeah, touch part <laughs> is so visceral and you can just sit there and just enjoy how the water fills up against you. Yeah. Right? Like there's a reason why people love the beach. It stimulates all five senses very, very You're quickly. You're talking about all my favorite things. <laughs> and, like, so there's this, there's this uh, exercise we do and we kind of did it with Amy. It's called calm place that I do with, with, um, with clients all the time. And in calm place, what you do is you use your imagination, your thinking brain to go to a place that stimulates three out of five senses 
And you literally take your mind to a place you've been previously to make you mm-hmm. chill out and calm down. Yeah. And it's just this really concrete way of meditating that people can do at any given time. And it, and it makes for a tool that you can use when you seemingly have no other tools available. Mm-hmm. And I love that that's, that's the thing. In yeah. case you couldn't tell, I'm freaking... <laughs> yeah. uh, Meditation is a huge part of my life and it helps a lot of people. Well, I did... I. I didn't see a therapist. I mean, I had a little bit of post help after po- like post placement help with LDS family services, but not much. Um, and I didn't really see a therapist until probably 12 years after I placed and we did a little bit of hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. And I remember my therapist walking me through this, you know, like close your eyes and you're going to see these stairs. When you get to the stairs to the top of the stairs, there's going to be a door. And when you open it, it's going to be the most relaxing place mm-hmm. you've ever seen. And whatever that is for you. And I'm imagining that place in my head. And and I, so I think it even started with that as well. You know, it's sure. just something that we didn't know how to label. But one thing that he said to me that was so powerful that really helped with my grieving after so many years. And I was so frustrated that somebody didn't say this before that. But it was like, you've spent so many years trying to fill this hole of where she was at. You know, you placed her for adoption and... And something's missing. And it did. I felt my whole life something was missing. And he's like, you, you keep trying to fill it. You got married. You got pregnant quick. You had your first child. Your first child was a boy. So you're like, well, I need to have a girl. And then that will fill it. And, and luckily, I didn't lean to anything that was really unhealthy. But I kept trying to fill this void. And he's like, what if you just accept that it's there? What if you're like, so I have a hole in my heart. And I remember just thinking like, oh, Duh. Like that is so simple. Why didn't somebody just say that to me before? Like it's there. I'm all right with it. You can't tell. I'm the only one that knows that's there. Why do I keep trying to fill it? Cause the other option is to just resist it constantly. Yeah. Right. And cliche moment. What resists persists. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It's a great one. It's true. If I so resist true. this thing, that's what's going to last. It became bigger. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. I accept I got a hole in my heart or I have loss or I have grief or I have Mm -hmm. pain. That's the thing nobody wants to accept. Yeah. All of a sudden, guess what happens to my pain? Cool part is you can do a brain scan of somebody who's actively accepting the fact that they have pain. The pain sensory part of your brain diminishes in activity. I I agree with that 100% because I remember the one thing I will say, which this sounds terrible, but the first time I went to therapy, (laughs) the one thing I do feel like he helped me with was he said, I want you to grieve every day for just a short period of time. He's like, you decide how long. Mm-hmm. And then he's like with Bridie, he's like, I want you to think of her every day. And mm-hmm. I still do every day. And I, I cry almost every day, but I, I cry and I think about her and I miss her. Yeah. And then I go on with my day and yeah. I'm okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like that's how I make her a part of my day every day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, the, the more I try to pretend like this doesn't hurt, I'm going to, I'm going to just, if I move faster, I'll forget more. Yeah. It didn't work. Yep. And the second I said, okay, every day I may cry for the mm-hmm. rest of my life, but it doesn't take my whole day. Yeah. It doesn't consume me. It just makes her this little piece of my day every day. And it's funny cause I, I wrote about that in my book, just like the whole grieving process and how I visualize that and how I've gone through it for so long. And for me, it's like, it's acknowledging that it's there. Mm-hmm. It's there. And I know this fight is going to show up, 
maybe every day, maybe once a month, whenever it is, I'm just accepting that the fact that I'm going to have to get in the ring with grief. And a majority of the time he usually beats me right for so many years. It was like, he would get the best part of me. I'd be a mess. And then after time went on, I became stronger because for one, I knew grief was coming. And two, I knew how to handle it. Now it was like, analyzing somebody's moves in a fight and it and I became better at it mm-hmm. to a point where I'm like okay show up yeah bring you it. know bring it like I know you're gonna come I'm gonna fill it it's gonna feel fine I'm gonna move on and then we'll keep going so you said that it it was 12 years after you placed that you went to therapy what finally what was it that drove you to say I I need help I was struggling with other things in my life at that time, searching for something, relationships that I was having a hard time with that really actually got me to therapy. It wasn't even the fact that I was a birth mom that got me there. But ultimately, when you're talking to a therapist and you say, yeah, I placed my first baby for adoption, they tend to lean on that and go, okay, let's you know dig into that deeper and started to realize that, that was there was this space there that I wasn't acknowledging and I kept trying to feel even subconsciously that I needed to just accept. Do you do you think that that was part of maybe what drove maybe some divisions in relationships that you were struggling with? I think it was more me not knowing who I am. Okay. So there was there was this great it was like it was good and it was bad that I jumped so quickly into the nonprofit and started speaking out and I was going to conferences and there was a lot of attention around my story and me and my name and, and it felt great. And it was, it was good to help. It made me feel closer to her because it was the only thing that I could do. But there was also a bad side to that where I was ignoring a lot of it. You know, it was like, yeah, I, I did this and I feel great about it and I'm teaching everybody, but I wasn't learning who I am. And, and because I got married so quickly after too, that was, that was hard. And so after I got to that kind of 12-year point, it was like, well, who am I without all of this, without the nonprofit, without Gina, the birth mom, and who is Gina, just Gina? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really kind of what hurt some of the relationships in my life. Is So you're writing a memoir? Yes. Um, What, in that memoir, is it your story, the whole, you know, from beginning to end? Yeah. And what is it that you hope to, that people get out of it? I think just seeing from the very beginning of like seeing that positive pregnancy test and the struggle I went through to make the decision and pick a family and just the whole process of what adoption is. And for adoptees to know that your birth parents never forget about you. I don't care if it was in the 60s or 50s, 70s. I don't care if they never held you. There is that space that you cannot deny and that connection that you cannot sever Mm -hmm. that is always there. And I have found as speaking out more now, now that I'm writing this story, that a lot of adoptees are like, I I don't know if my birth parents care or even think about me anymore. And I always push people to search and look. And every story is dramatic. Every story has some kind of crappy part about it. You know, I'm not thrilled that her parents are divorced you know, and there's some dramatic stuff that's in there, but I would never tell someone not to reach out and just see and find their background and start looking because I can guarantee you, your birth parents have always thought about you. And especially on your birthday, 
and just to be a support for other birth moms. You know, this is something I went through and it, it doesn't take over my whole life and I don't let grief, you know, take over everything that's in my life. And it was a moment and something that I learned a lot from. And, and I hope in the book that I can share those things to help people just get through difficult times. Is there a timeline on your book? Is it coming out a year, six months? Do you not know? I am just finishing it. So the first round of edits are done and I'm kind of just going in and filling in the holes. I haven't reached out to publishers yet or done any of that because like this part was so overwhelming Uh to me to just get it all down. I've been wanting to write it from day one. So what was great about the concussion as horrible as it was, I found myself a much better writer after, which mm. is strange. That's really And I'm really in this space, like, this is now the time to do it. So it it's close, but publishing-wise, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. So I have a question. You, so you have kids now? Yes. How old are they, and do they know about your first child? Yes, yeah, they do. So my son, my oldest son is 16, and my daughter is 13, and then we have a 7-year-old little boy. And they've known from the very beginning. Um, Brandon and I, my husband, so we, which is kind of a crazy story as itself too. We actually dated before I got pregnant for about a month or two. And then my ex-boyfriend came back and I went back with him and I got pregnant. So while I was living in Arizona, my husband called me and said, you know, I heard you're pregnant and keep the baby and marry me and we'll, you know, do it together And I had known him for like two months and I was already set on my decision. He was like, you didn't hesitate. You were like, nope, this is what I'm doing. He kept calling me every week while I lived there and we saw each other a little bit while I was pregnant. But then after that, we got engaged a month after I had her and then married in February. And then I was pregnant again in May. So it was fast. And I had already jumped into helping other birth moms and doing stuff like that after my oldest was born. So there was no thought of even keeping it a secret because it was so much a part of our lives at that time that it didn't make any sense. And so they've, they've all just always known. My daughter has a picture of her in her room because it's her only sister yeah. and she wants to know her. So I was going to say, do they, are they, are yeah. they hoping to meet her someday? Oh yeah. Yeah. They all are. And they, we have, we do a cake for her every year on her birthday. We oh, get a cake God. and we blow out candles and they ask questions about her all the time. And and it's at random too, in just weird moments. When they were younger, they asked a lot more or they would see someone that looked like her and they'd be like, oh, that's her, you know, look, look, look. And I'd look and, oh yeah, it looks so much like her. But yeah, it just, it was never a thought to not, to not say it because she's so much a part of our life still. Yeah. One of the questions that actually was sent in, it's kind of a tough question. It's a good one actually was, do you deal with guilt now that you have a family? Guilt as far as... That I didn't keep her? Yeah. I don't know. I didn't write the question, but it's interesting to think about. Like, you have this family now. Yeah. And you've created this life together. Yeah. Is there, maybe guilt's the wrong word, but some, I mean, there's going to be pain there, of course. Oh, yeah. There's, there is pain. But it's funny to me, I think when her parents first got divorced, there was a lot of regret. Mm-hmm. And, and I hadn't felt that. The entire time I was grieving and I, you know, was, had some really hard years, but there was no regret until they got divorced. Cause like I said, I had watched my nephew kind of bounce back and forth and that was like exactly what I didn't want. Yeah. And that's what ended up happening. And it was ironic that I was pregnant with my youngest at the time. And we had had two miscarriages before that time. 
And it was actually a blessing to be pregnant with him because I got super depressed, but I was like, I have to wake up every day. I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of this baby. And so the timing even was weird about it, you know, that it happened that way. And, and it took me a long time. It kind of threw me for a loop. It was like, I'd been advocating for adoption for so long. And all of a sudden I'm like, what did I do? Because if I took her out of her life where she was at and plopped her into mine where, yeah, I had two kids, I was pregnant and I was happily married. It's a perfect little picture for us, but I didn't know what her birth father was going to do. I didn't know if I had kept her, had he maybe tried to come back, would she be bouncing forth back and forth from day one? I didn't know that, but there were a lot of, I guess you, it, I don't know if it was guilt as more just like, I thought she'd have a fairy tale life. And I think that's what a lot of birth moms are taught or told even, or think subconsciously. Yeah. Like you, you're making this huge sacrifice so your child can have this amazing life. This, I mean, even when you're looking through parent profiles, it's like every profile is perfect. Every couple is perfect. They all live in a tree lined street neighborhood and have this picket fence because you're giving them more. And all of a sudden I felt like I was giving her less and I felt horrible about it. Like, how did I not know that they would get divorced and how, why is she not having this castle in the sky? So that, that was really hard for me. And it's funny cause I just wrote a blog post about this today was I had to go back to why did I place? Like, why did I really place? Not my like rehearsed answer of, I wanted to give her more. Or I wanted to give her a mom and a dad. Well, now she has four moms and dads, you know, two moms and two dads. Like I had to go in and go, what really made me do it? What really made me go, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it was the confirmations that I just kept having. Like when I held her for the first time and just said, this is not your baby. And I hated it and I was frustrated, but it was a confirmation. It was driving around in my truck, listing those pros and cons. And I knew, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. And every confirmation thereafter while she was with them that this was the right decision. And for whatever reason, this was my calling. I was meant to be Gina, the birth mom, for whatever reason. And that was why I did what I did. It didn't matter what her life turned out like. It didn't matter if she had the fairy tale. We all have our trials we have to go through. And, and so that was more, the divorce was really hard, but I had to, it gave me my why. That's cool. Yeah, one of the... Um... You said something earlier that reminded me of a, a really awesome quote that I love by Carl Jung, who's like this awesome philosopher guy. He said, uh, there's no consciousness without pain, which I think is super deep and like, but I really you have to have this pain in order to become conscious and aware and find that meaning. And that's what yeah. you did. The thing that reminded you of the meaning was the pain mm-hmm. of seeing her go through pain or knowing that she's going through pain. Yeah. And that's something that we as human beings don't really like to talk about or acknowledge. Well, we don't want to feel it. We, we want to we want to yeah. avoid it and push it back. Numb from it. Yeah. 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 That's really good. Yeah. Other question or do you have another one? No, I was just going to ask Sorry. you. So I guess, you know, I have a teenage daughter and mm-hmm. luckily we haven't dealt with this yet. Hopefully we won't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, right? But I I want girls, I guess what would you tell girls? Because my biggest thing is, okay, Teenagers do things they shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. We can tell them, please don't sleep around or don't do this, but they're going to do what they're going to (laughs) do, right? And I I understand that. I love my kids no matter what they do, but 
I, it makes, it breaks my heart when girls, this, these things happen, you know, when you're having sex, someone gets pregnant sometimes, whether you want it to or not. Yeah. How can we keep girls from, for one, feeling like they're worthless or having that shame and for two, realizing there is another option, you know, it's not just keep the baby abortion. You adoption is awesome. There are so many people who can't have kids. To me, this is like so amazing that you can give something to these people that can't do it for themselves, you know? Yeah. That's a hard question. I think for, for me and the shame, I had to get to a place where I didn't care. You know, I I was already miserable. I was already feeling like I wasn't worth anything. you know, especially growing up in the LDS church, I was that, you know, those chewed up goods that nobody was going to want anymore. And I was determined to make something better of myself. There was something within me that was like, you know what? Yeah, I feel horrible and I made this mistake, but it was also my sister. Like, who isn't doing this, you know? And who's to say, in my mind, I think who's to say it's a mistake? Because, yeah, yeah, for you, it was a hard thing, but that was a huge blessing for someone else. Yeah. I mean, it really has. And it's shaped my entire life, so I can't say that it was a mistake. Yeah. But that, I think that's, that's what, what you're told. Sorry, that's yeah. what you're told. Exactly. That's, that's what, what people told. want you to believe. Yeah. And that's what stigma would teach us. Yes. Right? You get pregnant before you're supposed to, whatever the hell that means. Yeah. Right? Like you're supposed to get pregnant when you get pregnant. And that's what the plan is. And you deal with it. Yeah. And you dealt with it in a way that worked for you. So I, I almost want to back up and say, I think it really starts with becoming sexually active and having parents who aren't afraid to talk about that. You know, it's so, it's secrecy. That's like how adoption was too. And it just frustrates the hell out of me. It's like, talk to your kids, you know, yes. it's, it's going to happen. It will. And if you talk to them, it doesn't mean it's going to happen sooner. It just means that you're educating oh, them. You know, it's my favorite thing is, so I'm. Mm, I I almost want to say too open <laughs> with my kids. I don't think that's a thing. Well, that's probably a thing. I mean, my husband's like, it's we not do not thing. need to have the sex talk every weekend. <laughs> I'm like, yes, we do. But you do. <laughs> I have two teenagers. Well, 18 and 16, and we do. And when they're friends, we do talk about it a lot because I I never was talked to about it. Yeah, I wasn't my either. whole life. Yeah. So if I had ever done anything, I for sure would have been pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I think that is a huge thing. Make them, I love the thought that they're aware. Yes. You know, my, my boys are aware of the fact that if you do this, mm-hmm. you're not a bad person. Would I choose for you to wait till you're married? Sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to think you're a bad person otherwise. Yes. And I'm not giving you permission huge. to have, everyone's like, I feel like you're giving them permission. I don't need to give my kids permission. If they want to have sex, they're going to have sex. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, let's be honest. That's mm-hmm. that's how we all were. So why are we acting like it's not that way? Yeah. Right? So I, th- I think it really does more start there and knowing that. And one thing that my husband always says to my son too is like, don't lose your options. You know, don't make, don't make that choice where all of a sudden your options become smaller like by that. doing that. And that's kind of how we've taught him like, you have the whole world at your hands after you graduate. You know, don't put yourself in a place where you now have three or four or two options of what you're going to do next. And I, I think once you, once the girls get pregnant and you're in that space, and especially in the community that we are, I found something that 
when I was pregnant, the more confident I was, I noticed the more confident people around me were. And that doesn't say I didn't have people that told me I was making a huge mistake because I did. And especially people that were in my parents' ward that were respected. And I later on found out that even my parents were getting crap from other people saying that I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. But there's something about energy being contagious. And the more confident I was that I'm doing this, like I'm like, I'm doing this. And I'm not going to be afraid to say that. Even though inside of me I was a little bit like, ooh, this is scary. <laughs> more people started backing me up. Because I felt good about it. Because I was like, this is what I'm doing. And as I've gone back through my journals, and thank goodness I kept those, I have been surprised at how positive I was through the whole journey. Because I had kind of forgot that after so many years of grief. And I talked to my dad about that. I interviewed my parents as I was writing the book. And my dad said, you just always knew. You were positive about it. You felt good about it. And that made us feel good about it. So I think with the girls... There's, there's so many, as far as educating them on, it's not just abortion or parenting or adoption that comes from your parents. It really does. And if you have teenagers, it's something that you have to share with them. Cause I'm not sure they're going to get that really anywhere else. I wish they would. And I hope they do. I know my son had in his health class, they had um, someone come in and talk about adoption. I know they've been doing that in high schools. I used to do that for a while and I think that helps, but what I really liked what you said, um, I'm going to butcher this, but it was something along the lines of you were confident and your parents trusted you. Yeah. That is not something that most parents are comfortable doing. Parents yeah. don't trust their kids. They just don't. They, they don't let kids lead the way because parents have all the experience. Guess what, parents? It's not your freaking life. Yeah. yeah. It's just straight up not. Yep. And we're all going to, we're all going to reap the consequences of our decisions. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it, good or bad. I always tell people, I'm like, I, I even my kids, I'm like, I'm doing the best I can. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it works. If you think you can do better, please. <laughs> I would love, I would love it. I would love to watch you be a better mom than me. That'd be awesome. Part of it is though, that when we cross that threshold into letting our kids run their own lives, mm-hmm. we empower them. And as parents, our number one job is not to disempower our children. We think it's to keep them safe. That's bullshit. That's not true because you can't. Mm -hmm. Instead, and we've talked about this before, you have to teach kids how to keep themselves safe. Yes. And they can't do that when they feel disempowered and they're relying upon you. So the greatest part of your story that I loved was you look to your dad and you're like, hey, dad, like, what should I do? And he's like, what do you think you should do? Yeah. That is the best dad move of all time. Like if parents did that more, kids would feel more powerful and they would make better decisions because the things yeah. we do as teenagers for sure bleeds into what we do as adults. Yeah. And I work with adults who never learn to feel powerful and they constantly feel disempowered and victims of the world around them. And guess what they turn to? Numbing, drugs, alcohol, they, and, and it's because of life circumstances and they didn't have the guidance there for somebody to say like, you can do this. Let me know what you want to do. We got your back. Yeah. That's a parent's job. Yeah. And it's funny. I wrote a blog post about this yesterday. We have this list like of seven things. They're like standards or values in our house. Right. And one of them is you were born with everything that you need. You're not missing anything. Love that so much. It's funny though. I got a lot of questions from my kids about what that meant. They were like, what? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? 
And, and I explained that to him and I write a blog post about it. And I got a text from my mom on my way here actually. And she said, did you write this? And I'm like, yes, it's on my website. And she's like, it's really, really good. (laughs) I was like, thanks mom. (laughs) But it's true. It's like, I'm trying to teach them. And what I have learned is like, you have everything you need inside of you to fight whatever life throws at you. You have that. And a lot of that I found in meditation. And I'm not saying that you have to meditate to find that. That's how I found it is going inside and silencing my mind enough to find the strength. But we are all born with what we need to overcome or to be happy or to make the choice to create a better life for ourselves. If we all just got that, this would be, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. We wouldn't. It's actually, there's actually a term for it. I don't know if you know this. It's called self-determination. We, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's actually, in, in therapy school, they teach you that's the guiding thing that you're doing. You sit there across from somebody and they know the answer already. They just don't know they know the answer. So your job is to ask the right questions so that they figure out the answer they already knew. That makes so much sense. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I like it's, that. It's, it's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, if people want to read this blog post that you're talking about, yeah. where do they go to find that? GinaCrotz.com. Awesome. Do you have any other way that people can reach out to you, connect with you that you want to share with our listeners? Yes, I do a lot on Instagram. Awesome. Yeah, which is Gina Krotz Writer. So you can follow me there. Is it Krotz with a C or a K? C. C R O T T S. And I'll put a bunch of links on on this in the show notes uh, so you can find it on iTunes. It'll be in the post that we put out there and stuff, and we'll definitely tag you and everything. Other ways you want people to get a hold of you? That's that it. it. Everything's Insta on there. And check out her blog. Yes. Awesome. I love it. Okay. It's my turn to say, what's everyone's takeaway? Yes. We like to finish the our podcast by saying, like, what's your one thing? You know, we've talked about tons of stuff and so much awesome information. But what is the one thing each of you feel like you really, really hit home or you really want people to hear and think about? Gina, you can go first. I think it's what we just ended on is that you have the power within you to overcome anything that you're going through right now and that you're never alone. Um, I think sometimes my kids feel like that. You know, I can see them in their minds like nobody knows how I'm feeling. And I felt like that ironically after I placed, right? But knowing that you're never alone, there's always someone there. There's always someone you can reach out to if you have the courage to reach out to it or if you go within and quiet your mind that you have the power to do a lot of really great and amazing things. Um, no surprise here. My favorite thing is that we talked about suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Matt didn't cry though. I feel like we did him a disservice today. <laughs> I didn't cry. I, I love crying. It's so great. On the other side of suffering is strength. And that is what we, I want growth. Like if I, I, I know my five core values and my North star that I look to for everything in every hard moment is growth. And I cannot grow without learning or I cannot grow without pain. I cannot learn without loss. And that is something that people deserve to know and embrace because when you do it on the other side of that is immense joy and contentment and happiness and magic. Like Gina just said, (laughs) magic because it is freaking magical. Um, Okay. So my thing, I'm going to give kind of two for one connection. I feel like is, Everything. I, every single podcast we've done, it's connection. Sure. If we can connect with those that are similar situations, similar feelings, similar, 
we just, we thrive because you realize you're not alone and it's huge. And then you feel like you can grow by learning from what other people have done. And that's amazing. Um, the next biggest thing is I, you know, I'm Brene Brown lover. Can we please get rid of shame in our culture? Cause I freaking hate it. We need to quit shaming people for anything, whether it's having sex or having a baby or choosing a different direction in life or anything. People are awesome and everyone deserves to be loved and to feel like they belong somewhere. And if we can get rid of that shame, everyone will feel that way. True. Can I say one more thing? Because I feel like the adoption community will slaughter me if I don't say this. (laughs) (laughs) There is this thing that everyone always says, you gave your baby away. I was going to ask about this earlier. Sorry. I said it a bunch of times. That's okay. Everybody does it and it's fine, but it's like, it's such a sensitive thing. Mm -hmm. I think all birth moms kind of have their words that trigger them, but that is one that is such a common one that I just want to make sure that everybody knows. It's like, you placed your baby for adoption. Mm -hmm. I didn't give her away. I didn't drop her at the doorstep. I placed her in that situation. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for educating us, for being here with us. This was another great episode. I love this. Like, I could sit and listen to you for hours. That was so awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, we just finished up our episode seven. Seven. That was awesome. Seven times. Uh, With Gina, and that was amazing. It was, we learned so much that we want her to come back another time after her book has come out and you guys can learn a little bit more about her. We also didn't want her to leave. <laughs> We're so like, tell us more. Tell she's us more. She's still here. And she has things she's going to teach us and promote and fun stuff. So yeah, we want to hear what yeah. Gina's doing now. So I work with a company called Care Solutions and they run a website called parentfinder.com. And it's a website for adoptive couples to put their parent profiles on there. So birth parents can go on there and learn about these couples to pick them for their babies to place with them. And what happens is they fill out certain sections. There's like our home and about us and about our neighborhood and, you know, their hobbies or whatever. And they fill that out and send that information to me. And then I edit it, make sure it looks good, make sure they're not saying anything that's sensitive and send it back to them. And then their profile goes up online. Oh, that's so awesome. So it helps them have a better chance of being able to adopt. Yes. Yes. So cool. That's rad. Thank love you. It. Doing I love amazing it. Amazing stuff. Oh, yeah, for so real. glad to have you on here. I can't Thank wait you. for your book. Thanks. There are so many things. You guys, her book, it's going to be epic. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> so when it comes out, we're going to be first one to interview, right? Yes. You heard yes, it here. I She's coming back on. <laughs> you heard it. So, you guys, if you are loving these podcasts, and if you don't, then tell me because I'm going to come over to your door and make sure that you love them. <laughs> Um, you need to go on and rate us five stars because that would help a lot. And we need subscribers. The more people that subscribe, the more people this gets to. And you all know our goal is to save the world. So <laughs> Small goal. Small goal. Yes, please. If you're on iTunes, go five stars. If you're on Anchor, go and favorite the podcast. Subscribers is the number one thing we need as well. Leave a bunch of reviews. And if you really don't like it, don't leave it a review online. Just tell us them. If you really, Text me. if there really are things you want us to do better, we want to know because we really want our listeners to be feel very involved in this whole process because that's kind of the idea. For me, uh, shout out to 
the people who supported Sam after the last podcast. Yes. Um, the last podcast for Sam was so difficult for her because it was such a gnarly subject. That's heavy. Yeah, and so I talked to her for quite a while after the last podcast, and she just wanted to express to everybody how grateful she was for you guys. Thank you for to all her friends who hopefully are still listening, and to all the listeners out there for the support that you've given, and hopefully that was something that touched you. Um, if you guys need a therapist, hit me up, at Matt underscore Quackenbush on Instagram, um, MatthewQuackenbush.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Matt Quackenbush, comma, MSW. Yes, um, don't forget, brighten a day. Um, we've had a couple things going on lately. We do some kind of group therapy sessions, and it's super helpful, and it's something we like to provide to parents who have lost children. So that's something that your money can go towards. Also, coming up here really soon, you guys, the holidays are coming, and we will be brightening Christmases. So keep that in mind. If there's something you'd like to help with or have money go towards, that will be something we'll be doing fairly soon. So another thing, listeners, is if you have a subject you want us to talk about, I know there are so many subjects out there that no one wants to talk about, but you really want someone to talk about it. So tell us, we'll talk about it. I, I have no shame and no qualms with talking about whatever you want to talk about. So let's do this. If there's something you really need to talk about or you really need to hear, let us know. Beautiful. Thank you, everybody. We Peace. love you all. Have a wonderful day finding your own strength.